Well, good evening. Uh, Open your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, though I'll read verses 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have come, Lord, and offered up yourself as a sacrifice for sin, Lord, and that you have, Lord, in that sacrifice fulfilled all that is written in the Old Testament And Lord, all that we need for life and for godliness, Lord, and that you have called us by your spirit to rest in this good work this evening. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to delight in worship this evening and this day, Lord. We pray now, God, that you would so soften our hearts that we might receive your word to us, Lord, Lord, that it might comfort Lord, it might convict. Lord, it might give us confidence. Lord, we pray, Lord, for any here who are hardened in heart, Lord, that you would, Lord, help the scales to fall off our eyes. Lord, we pray as well, Lord, that you would edify us by your word. And Lord, that you would strengthen us for the call that you have as the church. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as you know, we just finished a series on it, is a unique book. It's a unique book in its purpose in that it expounds how all the major themes of the Old Testament ultimately point to the coming of the long-anticipated Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's as if the, old te- the, the book of Hebrews looks back to the Old Testament and sees it through the lens and the prism of Jesus Christ. In our passage, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, I would argue is not only the most important passage in the book of Hebrews, but perhaps in the whole of the Bible. 
Now, of course, that's a major claim. Why do I say that? Well, imagine that there was a mansion just north of here on Reeds Lake, and uh, it's a beautiful home. It's, uh, it's got uh, an interior that's filled with incredible rooms. Uh, it's got a library that has full of books. It's got leather chairs and a spiral staircase. It's got a kitchen that is filled with food. It's got a, a living room that has an inviting space in it. And imagine I said, well, it's yours. Um, I've purchased it for you. Uh, you can go and live there. And imagine upon going to this incredible home that you get there and you go and you turn the key and you realize it's bolted shut. Or in fact, that you actually don't have a key. Um, that there's no way to get in to the mansion itself. And imagine sitting outside in the cold and thinking, well, I can tell from the outside that this home is beautiful, um, and I've been told it's mine, but I have no way to enter in. I have no key, actually, that opens the front door. And therefore, although I have this home, I have no access into it. Well, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 is like the key to the front door of the Old Testament. And I would argue not only the key to the Old Testament, but perhaps the key to the Christian life. We stand often outside the Old Testament realizing that it is something incredible, um, majestic, incredibly important. But we often read it and we don't see clearly. It's as if we're standing outside of it, peering through the windows, but never actually entering in to the glory that it is. Never experiencing, glorifying in, and seeing the significance and the relevance of how all of the Old Testament points forward to Christ. But oh, if we grasp this text, it opens up the door to the Bible and the Christian life. It, it's as if you walk through it and you have genuine access to so many rooms that you've never seen before. And you see the full beauty of the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. And that's what I'm praying will happen this evening, that as I hold out this key, that you would take it, that you would open up the scriptures again, and that seeing afresh, Lord, that you would savor, that you would say, Lord, I want to savor and see the goodness of your word. So what is this key I'm holding out? Well, it's this, that you would experientially receive by faith, all that Christ has accomplished for you in his once and all sacrifice for sin. I'll say it again. That you would experientially receive by faith all that Christ has accomplished for you in his once and for all sacrifice for sins. And I want to break this key down into three different points. First, Look at Jesus' superior priesthood. Secondly, look at the superior effect of Jesus' sacrifice. And third, the superior implications 
of Jesus' covenant. So first, Jesus' superior priesthood. Now, I think it's important to set Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 in contrast, in context. See, the way that Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 demonstrates the superiority of Jesus' priesthood is by drawing four contrasts with the work of Christ's work on the cross and the work of the Old Testament priests. And as I go through each of these four contrasts, I want you to think about it as if the monochromatic light of the Old Testament, as it shines on the prism of Jesus, that you would see colors in the cross that you never saw before. So the monochromatic light of the Old Testament, that you would be able to, through the prism of Jesus, see the reds and blues and the full glory of Jesus's atoning death for us. Contrast number one, the priest repeatedly offered sacrifices on a daily basis, but Jesus offered a sacrifice once and for all. Look at verses 11 through 12. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, in order to understand the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, we have to understand what these daily offerings were. And the context, of course, is Numbers 28. If you, I won't ask you to go there, but if you read Numbers 28, it describes these daily sacrifices. And it describes the process by which the priests would go. That every morning and every evening, they would take a lamb without blemish. They would hold the lamb out over the altar. They would slit the, the lamb's throat. And the blood would pour out onto the, onto the altar as a sacrifice for sins. And then they would do the same thing in the evening. They would take a lamb, they would slit its throat over the altar, and the, and the blood would pour out on the altar as an offering for sin. And they would do this day after day, morning and evening. As one writer said, literally, animal blood flowed because of these continual sacrifices. And we know, of course, from reading um, our Bible, and from looking at uh, the catechisms and from the confession, that Jesus had three offices. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. And that raises the question, well, what does Jesus do? I mean, what does he actually do in his priestly office? What does that actually look like? And how is that superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Well, this verse says that although the priests offered these sacrifices daily and repeatedly, Christ offered himself for all time once, period, on the cross. So that's contrast number one. Contrast number two, the priests offered the blood of another, namely animals, but Jesus offers himself. That statement should raise a question in your minds. 
How do we know from this text that Jesus' priestly offering is himself? I mean, that's not a given. It's not in verse 12. So how do we know that Christ's offering in verse 12 is himself? Well, look at the parallel between verses 10 and verse 12. Verse 10 says, We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then look at the parallel with verse 12. It says, He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. So what's the point? The point is, the one sacrifice for sins forever isn't another. It's Christ himself. And it's no wonder that the first thing that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, do you remember what he says? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John understood. Here is the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb who is going to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. But how is that how is that superior to the Old Testament priesthood? I mean, how is Jesus' offering of himself superior to the priest's offering of lambs? Well, it's not just that Jesus self-sacrificially offers himself rather than another. The, the superiority of the sacrifice is connected with who he is offering himself in the place of. We're meant to think of Romans 5, 6 through 8, that at, at the right time, he didn't offer himself for the ungodly, or for the godly, but for an, or for a righteous man, but for the unrighteous. And that is us. That's the majesty of this superior priest. Third contrast, the priest's sacrifices never took away sin, but Jesus' sacrifice was completely effective in atoning for sin. Now, I think we can be so used to hearing this that it doesn't even come as an incredible shock or even all that significant. But just imagine for a minute what it would have been like for an Old Testament Levitical priest to read verses 11 and 12 in the first century. Imagine the utter shock and amazement of reading and seeing the monochromatic light of the Old Testament sacrificial system shine on the cross in the beauty they would see in the cross. Imagine having experienced the labor of day after day making these sacrifices. Every day, picking out lambs without blemish. Every day, going to the temple. And then imagine hearing these words. One sacrifice forever. Imagine the utter shock and amazement. And imagine the gratitude that you would feel having heard these words. Imagine just having a sense of the futility, even as you every day go and make the sacrifice. 
that you probably will be doing it again tomorrow. Imagine the utter futility of doing this over and over and over again. And then the finality of this word, one sacrifice for sins forever. You would have the sense of sin has been paid for. And it hasn't happened on the basis of anything that I've done. It was completely apart from me. That's what we're meant to feel by these words. It wasn't on the basis of anything I've done. In fact, it was completely apart from anything I've done. Contrast number four. The priest stands to show he must keep on sacrificing. Jesus sits to show that his sacrifice has made complete atonement. Notice the contrast again. Verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at its service. And where's the contrast? Verse 12, Christ offered himself a single sacrifice for sins. And when he did, he sat down at the right hand of God. So the priest stands, Christ sits. And that should raise the question, well, what is that all about? How is Jesus as a seated priest superior to the Old Testament standing priest? Well, I think it's obvious that the priests, on the one hand, never took a rest from their labor. So they stand to signify that a sin must be atoned for. And Jesus is sitting in verse 12 is actually a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Why is it being used here, though? Why is Psalm 110, verse 1 being used here? We shouldn't just assume that each verse that's quoted is a natural fit. We should always query the text and say, well, why is it here? Well, I think it's to confirm two things. First, his, seat, his sitting confirms the unrepeatable character of his sacrifice. That when Jesus sits, he sits to show that as he said on the cross, it is finished. But he sits for another reason. He sits to show that he shares the authority of God Almighty. You see, even the great king Solomon, although he sat on his throne in the palace, he stood in the presence of God at the temple. Standing is the normal position of anyone in front of God. This wasn't just humans, but angels as well. We see this in the book of Revelation. To stand in God's presence was an ultimate honor. But to sit meant you shared the authority of God alone. And I just want you to just take a step back and think about this. This is the one who died in our place, the one who is now seated on the throne, the one who rules over the nations, the one who is king of the universe. This is the one who died 
in our place. So those are the four contrasts. And the point, as we said earlier, of these contrasts is to show the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. But secondly, this verse talks about the superior effect of Jesus' sacrifice. He's not just a superior priest, but his sacrifice has a superior effect. Now, look at verse 14. This is one place in the Bible where I think it's especially important to get the translation of the verb tenses correctly. Some versions, uh, King James Version, uh, New American Standard Bible, say, for by one offering, he has perfected forever or for all time those who are sanctified. But I really like how the ESV adds the word being. It says, for by one, a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the tense of the first verb is uh, uh, perfected is meant to underscore the finality and the extent to which it is a permanent result of Christ's offering. That if you have put your trust, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, that your sin has been completely atoned for. But the second half of the verse points to the fact that we are being sanctified. So the, prince, the, the, the tense of this verb is present continuous. Now why is this important? I mean, why are we making such a big deal out of verb tenses? Well, the reason is because no true follower of Christ would say, although he's been perfected, that he never sins in this life. We are all in the process of being sanctified. I like to think about it like an acorn and an oak tree. If you ask me, well, is an acorn an oak tree? I'd say, well, in one sense, yes. Uh, an acorn shares all of the same DNA as an oak tree. And yet, in another sense, uh, an acorn is nothing like an oak tree. Um, an acorn must first uh, go into the ground and die, and then it must reemerge as a small plant, and then it finally becomes a great oak. And that's the reality of the Christian life, that we have all been perfected, that if you have put your faith in Christ, that he has given you by his spirit a new nature. And yet, in a very real sense, we are all in the process of being sanctified. We're all on this trajectory from being an acorn to an oak tree. Some of us have just experienced the new birth. Others have begun to die to self and have begun to reemerge from the ground, as it were, and have begun to bear fruit. And others, particularly those who are older in the room, um, have, have grown up into what Isaiah 61 calls strong oaks of righteousness. That's what it means to be perfected, but to be in the process of being sanctified. And here's the great truth of the gospel. Nowhere, no matter where you are, whether you are an acorn, a new believer, 
you're a small plant that's arisen from the ground and is beginning to bear fruit, or you are an oak of righteousness, the Bible's promise is that we have already been perfected. And yet we are in the process of being sanctified. This sacrifice not only has a superior effect, but from this effect flows a number of implications. And I just want to highlight two from this text. Implication number one, that we trust that on the basis of this truth, that we trust in Christ's atoning death alone. The Old Testament priesthood is a crystal clear and awesome and awful picture of what it looks like to try to justify yourself on the basis of your own good works before the living God. To say it another way, the Old Testament priesthood is a physical representation of what many are trying to do in accomplishing in this life what is needed by their good works to inherit eternal life. Listen to me this evening, particularly young people. If you are trying to be a good person, to do good to others, even to go to church, if you don't drink and smoke and chew and go with girls that do, and that you think on the basis of this, that Christ, that God in heaven will see this and on the last day will have mercy upon you because of your best efforts. From this text, the Bible teaches that on that last day, you will be tragically and sadly mistaken. That Christ will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Because the Bible, not only in this text, but throughout the Bible, teaches the exact opposite. It teaches that it's not about what you do, it's what Christ has done. And that the only way to be saved is to say to Christ, Lord, I know that on my best day, I will never do enough. I will never be good enough. I will never do enough works in order to inherit eternal life. And I'm going to turn away from my best good works. And I'm going to turn to your all-sufficient work. Then as it were, you're going to say, I'm turning away from trying to be one of these Old Testament Levitical priests daily, going daily at my service, trying to atone for my sin. And I'm going to look to Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. And I see him as all-sufficient and beautiful. I'm turning away from myself. And I'm turning to you. You trust in Christ's atoning death alone. But I think there's a second implication as well. That on the basis of this text, we can say that God not only perfects us, okay? He not only justifies us, but he is the one ultimately at work in sanctifying us. I think sometimes many of us 
in our commitment to live out and stress the imperatives of the Christian life, we tend to forget that even in sanctification, we are ultimately and primarily passive recipients of the grace of God. For example, when I came to make application from this text, one of the things that just sort of naturally seemed to flow, and I was tempted to preach on, how we should respond to this glorious gospel by putting to death sin and living our lives for Christ's righteousness and in light of his holiness. And although that is an implication of the gospel, um, and even how some of our texts present our response to the gospel, that's not ultimately what this text says. Instead, this text points to something that's even more glorious. And see if you see it. This text forces us to come to grips with the fact that we can be confident and comforted by an astounded, astounding promise. We can be confident and, and, com- and, and comforted by an astounding truth. And that's this. He wants us to be confident that God will sanctify those he has perfected. Or to say it another way, those who have put their faith in Christ, he will continue to work and will complete the work that he has begun in them. See, this passage strikes at the core and the beauty of the gospel, that God's grace and salvation is not just pardon for every sin, but it is the power to continue overcoming sin. And that just as in justification, God works on your behalf ultimately in sanctification. That what you could not do for yourself, God does for us in sanctification. It's God's powerful grace continually at work in me and in you to accomplish your salvation. And I said this gives us confidence. This gives us confidence that ultimately the hope is not in ourselves that we will make it, but in the God who is at work. Paul says the same thing. He draws on this confidence in Philippians 1 verse 6. Listen to his words. He says, and I am sure of this. He is rock solid confident. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And you can claim that truth, that if you have put your faith in Christ, you can say, I am sure of this. I can take full confidence that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. And we have an infinite amount of resources. God is not indifferent to our holiness. No, in fact, he is the one who works it out. He is the one who is ultimately the root beneath our working. And that gives us tremendous confidence as we battle against sin. But it doesn't just give us confidence. It gives us comfort as well. In the Christian life, I think a common experience for myself 
and for many, has been to wonder, am I really going to make it to the end? I mean, I often think in those moments when I'm most honest with the Lord, Lord, am I really going to make it? How am I going to make it? How will I make it to the end of this life without falling away, without making a shipwreck of my faith, without doing damage to the name of Christ. Lord, how is this going to happen? And when I get caught in that, it can leave me anxious and exhausted. And I think the reason is this. Because undergirding this fear is primarily a belief and a mentality that says sanctification is ultimately dependent upon me. Christ has justified me, but it is up to me to struggle and make it to the end. And in some degree, we can end up in sanctification doing the very same things that these priests were doing in trying to justify themselves before God. And if that's where you are this evening, this text just speaks a beautiful word to you. It says that the confidence and the comfort is in the strong name of the Lord who is at work in us. Remember what the Lord said to the Israelites in Exodus 14. Remember the Israelites in front of the Red Sea and there is Pharaoh's army charging after them. And you remember what Moses says to the Israelites. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you this day. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. They were passive recipients of the grace of God in salvation. And in the same way, God wants to speak a word of comfort to weary pilgrims this evening. Faced with the burden of your sin, he just says over you, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which I will work for you today. I will fight for you. He is your warrior king. And we need not be afraid that we will make it. For those who have put their faith in Christ, he will carry till the end. I just close now with my favorite benediction uh, from the scriptures that I think just raises the affections of our hearts to not only see this and savor it, but to rejoice. Listen to Jude's words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, not anxiety, not fretfulness, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. That is the good news of the gospel, friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you have loved us with an everlasting love, Lord. That you have 
come, Lord, and you have become our great high priest, Lord. And you have not only become our priest, but you have become our great sacrifice, Lord. And that you have changed us, Father, from the inside out. You have perfected us, Lord. And Lord, you are sanctifying us, Lord. Oh, what good news it is, Lord. Lord, may our hearts rise, Lord, to meet you and to glory in that awesome truth, Lord. And may that give us great confidence. May it give us great comfort. May we turn away, Lord, from the best of our works and turn only to the finished work of Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that the the scales on our eyes would fall off, that we might see and savor this glorious truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand uh, and sing together our closing song, our second to closing song, The Lord is My Salvation.